Hello, and welcome to Beyond the Hedge, a podcast from Scribeham, where we go in search of the people, places, traditions, and tales that shape Britain's rural landscape. In this episode, we're going to be thinking about woodcock, which I'd say are possibly my favourite bird. There's something ghostly about them, the way they just appear silently flitting through the trees when you're out in the woods in winter. But there's also a lot of controversy around them. Vast numbers of woodcock migrate to Britain in autumn when the weather turns cold. I once saw literally thousands of them on an old road in Galloway when I was driving to catch the ferry to Ireland. They just kind of fell in front of me and it really made me think of that term, fall of woodcock. It made sense in that moment. But our own native population is doing poorly and some people say we should stop shooting them completely. I'm going to head to Suffolk first to see scribe handwriter Sam Carlyle. We're going to head out with his young Vistler to try and shoot a few woodcock and we might then cook them for lunch if we, uh, if we do manage to catch up with some. I'm then going to speak to Owen Williams. Owen Williams is an artist from Wales and he used to shoot woodcock but actually he's now stopped shooting them but he's been very involved in woodcock conservation for decades and I think probably he's better placed than almost anybody to answer that question you know should we shoot woodcock and you know should we should we feel okay about still doing so we often think of East Anglia as being very flat and very agricultural but where Sam lives in mid-Suffolk it kind of feels as though you've gone back in time 50 or 60 years. The fields are small, the hedges are dense, and there's a lot of woodland that's been there for centuries. The sun looked wicked when I got there and streaming down through bare branches, and the morning felt naked and cold. Have you seen the numbers change over the years? Migratory woodcock um, have, have certainly stayed level or increased here in our part of Suffolk. What is very clear uh, from the science and from observations of, of older people, particularly my father, is the number of resident woodcock have completely collapsed. Um, my father speaks of, of seeing woodcock raiding in the rides in our woods here uh, every springtime and has apparently twice seen them take off carrying their young uh, here. And I don't think I've ever seen a woodcock in springtime. So um, certainly the residents have collapsed. But I think when it comes to shooting woodcock, the key thing is to follow the advice of, of people like the GWCT and make sure that when you do shoot them, they are the uh, sustainable and buoyant migratory population. And, and have you seen, you've, you've started to see them coming in already this year? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, we don't shoot any woodcock on any of our driven days. My personal view is that uh, if you've got a few pheasants flying over your head, uh, a woodcock over open ground can be quite a simple target. And additionally, it's not like you need that additional level of um, of sport on a driven day. There's normally plenty to shoot at. Any, anybody listening to this who in future years sees Sam taking on a woodcock over open ground and missing can remind him yeah. <laughs> <laughs> of his work. I'm almost certainly uh, going <laughs> to miss all of them in the future. But I, um, uh, a few years ago, I, I got a Wiesler, which is a pointing pointing breed, and he's called Merlin. And, and Merlin's running around at our, at our feet now. Yeah, and we're, with he, a bell. What I noticed is that he's very good at pointing woodcock and woodcock sit quite well and one of the things that uh, I've enjoyed doing tremendously with him is working him through our woodland which we manage on a rotational coppice uh, system it's been the same sort of woodland management that we've had in these woods for the last 800 years and 
we work through the wood, watch the dog um, work, go on point, hopefully Flutter Woodcock. They're incredibly challenging targets, fleeing uh, through the densest part of the wood where they don't often offer a shot. I read once that woodcock only really started to be recorded here as breeding birds when more woodland went in in East Anglia, probably because of people starting to get into driven pheasant shooting. Is that something you've read about? That is something I've read about. Unrelated to woodland planted uh, for driven pheasant shooting uh, is what I've heard. I've heard that they really sort of were in, say, the 1700s. There were as many breeding woodcock as there are now, very, very few in the UK. But that when things like Thetford Forest, which is 100,000 acres of sort of coniferous woodland, was planted to put an injection into the British timber supplies uh, post-World War One. They, um, they, they loved that low-level coniferous cover, you know, Christmas uh, trees really and spruce and stuff that's sort of waist-high or, or shoulder-height. And that was the sort of dense cover that they really loved. And then as that grew up and the woodland understory became shaded out and disappeared in these plantations, so the uh, breeding populations disappeared. In these woods, we haven't changed the management system, as I said, for 800 years. Nothing's changed there. And so why would they disappear from here? And they did start to disappear as we saw an increase in um, muntjac populations and roe deer populations here. You know, they worked out the reintroduction from Thetford Forest to this part of Suffolk. Uh, And so there is a a correspondence in that timeline of increasing deer and decreasing uh, resident woodcock here. Um, But I think when you shoot woodcock, one of the key things, if you do shoot them on driven days or uh, walk them up through woods, is that you have your compartments, which you shoot at most sort of twice a year, really. And and so you you woodcock come to the... uh, overwinter in the same spots that they were that their parents overwintered in and so if you shoot every if you shoot a drive let's say a pheasant drive six times a year and you shoot woodcock on each time uh you have the opportunity to wipe out that line of woodcock that comes to that specific place so it's all about moderation and uh i always think another key thing is and you're going to shoot them you should eat them absolutely and they are probably one of the most delicious birds and my aim Hopefully, by the end of the podcast, is I will have caught up with Woodcock and I'll be on my way back to London with a Woodcock for my tea. So, what's the? How are we actually going to attack this wood? What's the? What's the approach? Uh, so we've we've sort of walked to the end of the wood so that we can work Merlin into the wind, and uh, we're looking at a, a bit of recently coppiced but unextracted timber here, and we'll work him through that. And what Woodcock like is sort of moderate ground cover. They don't want it too thick uh, because they can't escape if they're flushed uh, or or scared and they don't want it too sparse because they need somewhere to duck into we're going to work through bits of the wood that that have that particularly sort of hazel coppice from about 10 or 15 years ago is that is that is is the sort of perfect habitat for them seeing merlin do his thing is just extraordinary he's so engrossed in the landscape around him and you become so engrossed in him and what he's doing it's that relationship between landscape and dog and man that makes woodcock shooting over a vista so special when we did get there, when Merlin got onto point the first time round, the bird disappeared into the bright winter sun before we could get a shot off. But that's kind of the point. I think when you've been out hunting woodcock, and hunting is the right term, you go home and you think, wow, you know, nature there really got one over on me. You know, nature can do things that I can't do. It makes you feel small rather than making you feel as though you've gained dominion over nature. And that, to me anyway, is the, is the point of it. 
So Sam, what, what could it be? <laughs> no, so we had Merlin on, on point. He was working about 50 yards away from us to our right and he froze on point and it took a while for us to, to get to him because it was through the, through the brash. And I think possibly the woodcock crept forward. Normally they do sit quite tight, but when we gave him the command to flush it, it was probably 10 or 15 yards in front of him and he flushed it through a um, thicket of blackthorn so that was sure the uh, woodcock lives to lift the scene there. absolutely but we've had a we've, we've seen him work we've seen him go on point and uh, as you say Patrick hopefully where there's one then there might there be more he's on point again there's a holly bush in front of him it's a perfect territory for these birds. Stressful stuff. And there was nothing at home. There was nothing. Maybe just a little songbird. We don't know. The wood was really sodden, but Merlin continued to do his thing. We saw birds flush, actually, which was interesting. They were flushing quite far ahead of us, and we weren't really sure why that was. You get people who'll tell you, oh, they're doing this because of that, or they're doing that because of this, but I often think that people purport to know sometimes more than they, they do know, and actually the wonder of woodcock shooting is there's lots that we don't know. But eventually, he did come onto point, and we dropped a couple of cartridges into our respective guns, and we, we got up there. So we just had probably our best point of the day. Merlin was in some brambles and I walked onto him, but it was about 30 yards out and it was just over his head. So this cover, Sam's saying, is quite a lot higher than when he was last here, which makes it challenging. But then that's, that's why we're here. That's why we're here. And there is a guy I know on my way back to town who has a few woodcock for me. So if it all goes wrong, I can stop in there on my way home and uh, and get one the get one the easy way. It's worth saying that dogs, and I think particularly young dogs, can end up pointing old bits of scent. And we were seeing birds breaking ahead of us, so Merlin could have been pointing one of those, and he could have been pointing bits of scent from birds that we've never seen. I think that's one of the interesting things about being in a wood, is you can think that you're seeing everything, but actually, you know, there'll be munchak breaking that you don't see. There'll be even foxes slinking on ahead of you, just quietly escaping. And you know, they're gone before you know it. You, you never see them. And I think that's a, a wonderful thing about the woods. So we just had two there. Merlin did an outstanding job. Some feathers knocked out of one. That might be the feathers are here, but I would say he went on pretty strongly. Merlin! Over! Wow, that was pretty spectacular. And so that was completely safe, just to clarify, but I did have to duck down into the brambles for Sam to take that one um, just to the left of a pine tree. Really nice. So Merlin HPR, Hunt Point Retriever, as the acronym runs, is now looking for Sam's bird, which was shot pretty cleanly. I love oh, trading opportunity. So Sam, this is this is him. Yeah, this is the first uh, woodcock of the day. Shot pretty convincingly. 
Yeah. The yeah. only beautiful bird, isn't he? No, they're tremendous. They're the most extraordinary bird. And extraordinary they're nocturnal story. birds, really, aren't they? So we're we're disturbing them while they're asleep. Yeah, and and sort of while they're while they're roosting, really, during the day, and then. What's quite interesting is if you go onto a stubble uh, at night, just a few hundred meters from here, it's a couple of fields, stubble and, and cover crops or, or winter wheat, and you'll see them on there with the thermal imager. Really? And they're quite extraordinary. I have a friend here uh, who who runs her out sort of lamping, and we saw one with the thermal, and we put a lamp on it, and you can go and pick it up. And uh, it stayed in the lamp, and he just picked it up and had a look at it alive and then let it go. And is it right that they used yeah. to use the pin feather to run the stripe down... Rolls Royces. I don't know. That's a, that's a very good reason to buy a vintage Rolls Royce. I like the story. Can you show me the pin feather? Yeah, it's the last. Show the pin feather on um, woodcock were used by painters. That is the pin feather. Wow. So yeah, very sort of firm painter's brush. I've sort of lost pin feathers over the time. But if I shoot a woodcock, I always take the pin feathers out. Keep put the pin feather. My, put them in my cap. Don't really sort of keep uh, uh, them forever, but put them in my cap for for as long as they last before they fall out again. Dur so during the summer, where do these birds? They, when do they leave us normally? So I sort of see my last woodcock sort of February end of March that sort of time. Yeah. Uh, and normally each year, and then. They disappear off to sort of Central Europe, Scandinavia, Russia, uh, quite far south east Russia as well. If you look at the most amazing sort of woodcock tracking maps on the GWCT website, it's absolutely extraordinary. And one of the monkey, you know, went off to practically monkey beyond Tajikistan. Really? Monkey's a good yeah. name for a woodcock. From, from Norfolk. I mean, it was totally extraordinary. Wow. wow. There are people who think that shooting woodcock is an awful thing to do. I mean, like, I've mentioned some of the reason why I enjoy it so much. I've written articles for magazines about shooting woodcock, and you can, you can guarantee within a minute or two the comments section will fill up with people saying, how awful, how can you do this? And I wanted to put that to Sam. What does he get out of it? We people listening to this podcast who probably haven't seen Woodcock and would love to see Woodcock, and some of them might think, you know, what's what's this all about? Why have you got to shoot them? Before? What what do you what do you get out of this whole experience? Well, it's totally wild, Fory, uh, and you learn about their habitat, how they fly, where they want to fly to, and for me, I think actually the key thing is working the dog. It's sort of man and dog. It's a very natural process hunting a wild. Bird. So there's almost a sort of intimate connection with the wood. Absolutely, absolutely. I think he looks like he's on point there in the bracket. Just as Sam and I were deep in thought and deep in conversation about why it is that we do what we do, Merlin was suddenly on point again, so we broke off and we got up there. One of the things that I love so much about fishing and shooting is that it gives you this sort of intensity of excitement. This is pure excitement and joy about it. And when Merlin was on point, I was just edging up and edging up and edging up. And I was kind of willing him not to rush on so that he didn't flush the bird early and it was too early for me to get a shot off. But then when I was like five or six yards away, bang, it was up. It was kind of flitting over a patch of scrub and I fired, I pulled the trigger just at the moment that it basically disappeared from view. And it felt right. You kind of, you know, if you do enough of it, you kind of know, okay, that felt as though I was in the right place, but I couldn't actually see. But Merlin, heads up, Merlin thinks that I've shot it and I can see Sam just around the corner. I think probably got a better view than me. I can't tell, but Merlin thinks I have and, and often dogs know best. Oh, he's got it, he's got it. Come on, good lad. Good lad. Look at this. 
Well, it is. Coming back. The good lamb. Well, it's... There we are. Hunted, pointed, and retrieved. Retrieved, yeah. Now get it to runner. What an absolute legend. Well done, Merlin. Good lad. So that's probably... We're probably about done, would you say? We bumped into one more and then... Yeah, yeah. I think yeah. Two, two, two braids two. would be the sort of limit for this. For this, this kind of thing. Next. A lot of people don't like pheasant shooting because of how many get shot. And I think that's a... You know, it's an interesting thing to think about. Whereas with this, obviously, you know, every shot counts, every bird counts um, to a greater degree, perhaps. Yeah. And you could spend all night talking to people about that and you get lots of different... No, I mean, you remember sort of every point and we've had... Well, we've had at least four points that have... Or five points that have been unsuccessful. Uh, we've had three points which have been successful. So... We've even missed. Absolutely. Yeah. I've even missed. No, we've missed two. Yeah. Uh, three. We've missed three um, and had two other points which have got away without... Or two or three other points which got away without us firing a shot. So um, we wouldn't come yeah. into this wood again until we probably come one more time this year uh, after the, the full moon in January so that the population's replenished. And uh, we know we're just taking a small amount from this. Particular. It's kind of worth saying, I think, that this isn't a particularly British style of hunting. I mean, not least he's you know, he's Hungarian at some, mm. at some point. How far back do you think you have to go before he's actually, you know... I don't know. I mean... Cousins we, in Budapest? We brought him from the most amazing man called Roy Bevington up on the Yorkshire Moors. He doesn't sound very Hungarian either. No, but Merlin's father was called Lars, who did come from Denmark. Oh, really? Wow. So Possibly uh, Lars from Denmark had a, um, had a Hungarian, close Hungarian yeah, ancestor. Interesting. Uh, but, um, I think it's not sort of British in the way we see it now, but if you look at all of the old British sporting art, they're all over pre the breech loading shotgun. Uh, it was all over pointers and walked up shooting. So it, is, yeah. it has a uh, history in Britain. There's a really interesting, there's a bit of a trend for people involved in conservation who are sort of adjacent to shooting to say that they agree with the Scandinavian model of shooting, by which they really just mean the way that people sort of used to shoot here before probably like the 80s even, many more people. I mean, I was having a conversation the other day with Jonathan Young, who edited the field for the best part of three decades, and he was saying he remembers distinctly when he was at Shooting Times that they started to cover a lot more driven stuff because it was a lot more accessible, whereas before that it was just woodcock, snipe, geese, you know, and you might have somebody who would describe themselves as hugely enthusiastic who shot 15 birds a season. You know, things change very quickly and people forget very quickly you know, how we used to do things. I, I agree with that. But interestingly, I mean, I am, I love driven shooting and I'm a great supporter of it. And I think one of the things you mentioned is that it is so accessible. It is something that we're able to control. We're able to rear pheasants. And uh, generally, if it's done properly, it still enhances the environment quite considerably. Whereas this, we're taking a small harvest maximum you can come to this sort of 60 acre woodland to do this sort of thing twice a year and uh, it requires a, a dog and if you can only come twice a year and take a small harvest with two people that's a very small number of people and it relies on someone uh, who has the privilege to own the wood or have the sporting rights and to keep the access very restricted so in a way although this which is, is a whole different topic of conversation yeah although this is <laughs> this is free and wild yeah. and natural you think sport, human disturbance in a way more elitist you think human disturbance is bad for woodcock 
yeah, human disturbance, I think, is pretty much bad for all wildlife, unless you get to a situation like you do in parts of, the, say, the Serengeti, where they're so used to uh, really? human disturbance all the time from vehicles. I think that where you have footpaths, you don't have uh, ground-nesting birds like golden plover or lapwing or, or... But do you have a sense, I mean, you know, you're very lucky to own this place, your dad owned it before you and, and, and so on. You know, what, what responsibility do you have to the local i mean you're out here doing what you want to do you're enjoying shooting woodcock do you feel a sense of responsibility to people you know who live around here to provide a place for them to enjoy as well yeah absolutely and actually through this wood we do have a permissive path and we uh it runs from our restaurant to uh through a bit of park through the wood to the vineyard and we do see actually a detrimental effect to that but that's part of allowing public access and being uh not just good custodians of the land but good good sort of good part of the community Mm -hmm. Um, and i do Mm -hmm. think that that is really important but it's key to find a balance um and one of the things that i think is so important for every landowner really should do and there should be clear sort of subsidies for this and i think it is part of elms or a future rollout of elms is education um every landowner really should have an obligation oh to educate yeah 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 (laughs) not in a patronizing way but i mean you know i really think that to get school children and to get school children out shooting woodcock I, mean, I think the health and safety form would be woodland management. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, I really do think that in America, in places, because you have public hunting land, mm. which has all sorts of problems, but because you have public hunting land, uh, you generally have a population who are far more engaged with field sports, with land management, with the countryside and so on. And they feel this sense of like, it's our land. And that's a good thing to foster. Absolutely. Uh, and and the advocacy that comes with that through yeah, organisations yeah. is enormous and an incredibly powerful lobby. Um, so we might... So that is important. We might catch up with one more woodcock and then uh, that'll maybe be us for the day if we catch up with one on the way home and then go and have a cup of coffee. As it happens, we didn't bump into any more woodcock on our way out, but we enjoyed our walk and we walked past some vines. Sam's parents weren't the first people in England to make wine, but they were in there pretty early. It was actually 32 years ago now that they first started planting vines, which was just before Sam was born. There are pictures of Sam's mother, he was telling me, heavily pregnant uh, when the vines had just gone into the ground. Their sparkling wine is really very good, and if you're ever passing Wiccan, do stop in and get some. They also have a very nice restaurant there. When we got back, Sam gave me a beer, a locally brewed beer that they sell at Wiccan, and uh, he got going. He's a very keen cook, and he just did his thing. But I thought that anyway, I would call Tim Adams. Tim Adams, everybody always says, oh, was the chef at River Cottage, and he was the chef at River Cottage, but that was a pretty long time ago now. He's done a hell of a lot since then. He's currently up in Scotland, where, among other things, he's trying to get people to eat more venison. But I wanted to know from Tim... You know, how does he cook woodcock? He's really a very good chef. He does things that I would never think of doing, and I wanted to know what he would do with with woodcock. Hi, Jim. Hey, mate. How, how you doing? I am very well. I am doing a podcast for Scribe Hound, and we've just been shooting some woodcock this morning over Vistlers, and we have three of them. Essentially, they've already been turned into Carpaccio, and I just wanted to know, you know, as a culinary opportunity, what do you think the best thing is to do with woodcock? Do a nice little sort of Chinese thing around the side of the breast, but keep the leg on. Yeah. And I rub those with a bit of miso, and then I... um. 
I'll leave them for half an hour and then I dip them in panko just on the skin side and I give them a, I give them a little bit of a pan fry like that and then I flip them over and um, take the pan off the heat just let them rest like that and then I take the liver out and I mash the liver up in the pan with a little bit of garlic and ginger uh, and then you know just a, you, you know some, either some finely chopped shiitake mushrooms if I've got them or you know whatever's to hand some spring onion or something like that a little dash of um, chowsing wine maybe a spoonful of you know hoisin sauce something like that and then just dash the soy and then sort of drizzle that over them so it's kind of like a a kind of almost sort of Asian style version mm, of the mm, traditional mm, cotton mm. taste kind of thing. I do a bit of that. They make excellent risotto because stock, the flavour of the stock's incredible. So Woodcock makes excellent, excellent risotto. Yeah. Uh, sort of make a stock with the leg meat in it and then kind of just, just sort of pan fry the breasts and slice them and stir them through the risotto at the last minute. Ideally, ideally with some steps. Yeah. Uh, be they dried or dried or fresh, probably probably dry given the Woodcock season. Um, and you know that that kind of thing. Um, yeah, I mean, I've never done I've never done a woodcock burger or anything like that. No, you need quite a lot of woodcock. That is really fantastic, Tim. Are you on your way somewhere? Yeah, just off the yoga, mate. Oh, very nice. Well, look, I'll give you a ring uh, sometime soon. We should catch up. That anyway was Tim's advice, and I went over to see what Sam was up to. What is this? We're having raw, raw woodcock. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I love cooking woodcock the traditional way, but uh, this is another way I really love doing it. So we've got woodcock carpaccio made from the breasts, just uh, breast out of the woodcock, fry with some salt and pepper super quickly, super hot, slice it up, bit of parmesan and pepper and, and olive oil. And then we've confit the legs, and confiting is also incredibly easy. A small pan of uh, duck fat, and sort of 160 for half an hour with the legs in and then just a quick fl- flash fry to crisp up the skin. And what I think is really cool about woodcock is that unlike a pheasant or a chicken, for example, uh, where there's white breast meat and then uh, dark leg meat, it's the opposite of around. Yeah. You've got yeah. this really dark, rich, super lean breast meat and then this succulent, fatty white meat on the legs. And, and this is not all cooked, not even seared? No, it's seared just on the outside. Just oh, on the outside, and so you get the two sort of different types and textures of meats sort of shown. I think in that purest form. Can we? Um, after all that looking, yeah, dig in, dig in. Here you go. That yeah. is really, that is really delicious. People always like to compare meat to other types of meat, but it's it's not unlike pigeon, but I think it's a better flavour. And it's very distinct, like woodcock, grouse. Pigeon, as you say, they're very, very distinct flavours, uh, which mm. is nice. Well, we're having some of your home-brewed beer. Not actually yeah. home-brewed by you. Not home-brewed by us, but you made using some of the malting barley that we grow. So oh, wow. uh, we also sell it in the restaurant. Did you devise this recipe yourself? I devised the carpaccio, and I was always unsure what to do with the legs. I used to sort of just roast them. Yeah, yeah. The chap, Nick Weston, who runs this, uh, known as Hunter Gather Cook, who's an amazing... Oh, amazing chef cooking over fire but particularly with lots of wild food and he loves confiting stuff uh from potatoes to mushrooms to loads of other stuff yeah. and um he was staying here and we had a woodcock and he was like let's confit the legs and so wow. it was his his idea first so these legs that i'm eating how do you how does it you confit them get some dark fat put it in a, a little pan um roasting tin small one put it in the oven and sort of 160, 180 until it's melted with a, you know, a few cloves of garlic, rosemary, salt, pepper, anything else you want to sort of add a bit of flavour to. And then for the woodcock legs, it takes sort of half an hour. 
but a duck leg takes a bit longer. And it's a way originally of preserving it. So if you salt them for a day in the fridge beforehand, you can comfy them and then store them in the cool down fat. And they last forever. Uh, but it's also a great way to get succulent stuff straight away to eat. It's really, really nice. Quite a different sort of flavour, isn't it, to that? Yeah. Just a sort of nice contrast with the different types of meat that a woodcock has. The real rich, lean breasts and the fatty, mild legs. It's a funny thing. We only planned that woodcock shooting trip like two or three days before we went out. But I think it's something I'll remember all my life. It was just so beautiful, the way the light was coming down through the trees and the dog working away with the bell around his neck. And we had no idea whether it was actually going to work at all. It was perfectly possible that we were going to return back to Sam's cottage empty-handed. But we didn't, and the food that he cooked was brilliant as well. It, you know, looking back on it, it didn't feel so much like woodcock shooting as a sort of funny form of woodcock worship. There are lots of people who shoot in Britain who don't shoot woodcock, but there are people who don't shoot them, who don't have a problem with other people shooting them, which is quite interesting. And one of those people is Owen Williams. I've long admired his paintings. He's a really fantastic artist, and I think he paints with a hunter's eye. There's this kind of deep appreciation for the bird in his work, and he sort of sees all. He has been involved in woodcock ringing for a very long time, and that's really how we know what we know about woodcock. He, I guess you could say, is at the coalface of woodcock conservation in this country. He lives right down in Wales, deep in woodcock country. And I wanted to ask him, what does the science say? I mean, so often those who dislike field sports say, you know, I look to the science. So let's look to the science. Owen Williams, you are synonymous with woodcock in Britain almost. You're an artist, you are keen on your shooting. Do you still shoot woodcock or...? Good question. I, I actually stopped a while ago. That was really prompted by the realisation that it wouldn't look very neat on the British Trust for Ornithology uh, database if there was a record of me ringing a woodcock on one day and then going and shooting it on the next. Um, so that was... Uh, because most of my woodcock shooting is done fairly close to where I ring. Uh, but actually, and I haven't gone soft on it because I spent many happy years following a Labrador through brambles and thickets and stuff, flushing and, and mostly missing woodcock. But I enjoyed the whole adventure of that, the real hunting, the real rough rough stuff, uh, which is where I sort of came from in my shooting anyway. But I, I got to the point where I thought, actually, I've had my adventures. Um, and, and actually, in some senses, going out with a lamp and a net at night uh, is actually hunting in a sense. I'd love to hear a little bit more about how that actually works. But just before that, so you are you're an you're an artist professionally. That's that's right, is it? Yeah, that's right. When when did you get into painting woodcock? Is that something that you've done forever, or was that sort of later? Well, yeah, I, I'd started painting sporting scenes uh, when I was about fourteen or fifteen, I guess, when I first was allowed to go out with a farm gun. Uh and I'd read The Eye of the Wind, Peter Scott's um autobiography, uh, and got wrapped up in that whole adventure of being out in the twilight hours and and being the hunter and that whole association, deep, deep association with landscape and hunting and studying the quarry and understanding how that all fitted into the weave of landscape and habitat and stuff. And that was just sort of my portal, if you like, into getting interested in wildlife. Um, and it, coming from a, 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 an artistic family, it seemed quite natural to start painting uh, and drawing wildlife and particularly uh, being inspired by Peter Scott, those sort of sunset scenes 
and stuff like that. And so I've been doing it for a long time. I went professional in 1985 um, and Woodcock in Wales, Woodcock are um, really the king of, if you like, of quarry species. Uh, we don't have many grouse here, as you know, uh, but Woodcock was the everyman's sort of quarry, uh, sporting quarry. I'm in mid Wales, Aberystwyth, right on the west coast, uh, in, in the middle of Wales. Uh, and we have a lot of very deep wooded valleys here, um, which are just perfect wintering habitat uh, for our migrant woodcock. So we don't have um, breeding woodcock in uh, in the west of Wales, or in, in fact, in much of Wales. Um, so uh, you know, come the winter, this was what people did, and the people with cocker spaniels uh, were out sort of almost every weekend up and down the valley shooting woodcock. But I think that what really makes them very special is that whole mythology and mystery of woodcock. And I was very sort of captured by that. Uh, I, I happened to live next door to a guy who was completely and utterly besotted with woodcock and had been all his life, a great, great shooting man who had cock spaniels and actually shot woodcock right up until his dying day when he was around about 90. Uh, but he lived and breathed woodcock. And um, I sort of absorbed that. But he tied up all the shooting rights locally. So it was forbidden fruit, really. I couldn't venture onto any rough patch here without him coming out and shooting me, basically. And uh, the, the, the Welsh Springer Spaniel, uh, was very much the dog in this area and still is to a certain extent. Uh, but yeah, it was it was what a lot of people did. Uh, and actually, you know, I, 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 I could take you within walking distance of my home here in West Wales to uh, a place where this guy, along with a load of neighbours, uh, set aside some uh, very rough, pretty well trashed up sort of habitat where they planted trees and copses and thickets where there weren't any before uh, so they could attract more wintering woodcock so they could have sport shooting woodcock uh, and you now walk through that habitat now and you see the biodiversity gain that that's brought with so many other species by providing that habitat so that was a sort of passion and that's not unusual this happened right across uh, many parts of wales where people were planting uh, you know copses thickets for for their wintering woodcock so you think in terms of those shooting woodcock it's a kind of give and take game those who like to shoot them also often create habitat for them. yeah I, I i'd call this the enlightened self-interest and it's something that doesn't get talked about an awful lot but um or even you know enough really in the big debate about shooting woodcock and whether we should because um if you were to ban that then that incentive for people to create habitat and maintain it and you will know if you've been to places like Cornwall there are many places down there where they do a huge amount of habitat work just so that they've got really good woodcock woods that are left peaceful and quiet um, but uh, they go and enjoy their sport there a couple of times a year and yes on a, on a given day they might shoot a, a big bag of woodcock but the pressure the overall shooting pressure through the season is very comparable to what you'd get if it was a sort of free-for-all in the valley where you know every Tom, Dick and Harry went down it as a weekend to shoot. So, uh, you know, it's, a, it's an interesting perspective that, but yes, certainly there's no question in my mind that that sort of management of ha habitat would be lost um, if woodcock shooting was banned in the UK, which is one of the reasons I've been advocating that we don't rush to, to, to put in sort of all sorts of bans. So, Owen, the process of, of ringing woodcock, is that, that involves a net and a lamp, is that right? Yeah, that's correct. So um, in recent years, there's been a major development in using that technique called dazzling, uh, dazzle and net. Um, traditionally, bird ringing happened with nets suspended in uh, in woodland to catch uh, smaller passerines, etc. 
Uh, and then the French developed this technique primarily on partridge uh, to study and ring partridge in France. And then they discovered that you could catch a lot of woodcock doing that. Uh, and then that spread very quickly through uh, the ringing world. And it, it's quite a difficult technique. It requires a lot of stealth. Uh, you put the lamp, uh, the, the, the beam of the lamp on the bird, uh, and then you need to walk in very, very quietly. You go out at night. What kind of time do you head out? So really, uh, I, I found that if you go too early after dark, uh, birds are very actively feeding. What you want to hit is that period where they've done their feeding, they're relaxing a little bit, uh, they're digesting, they've gone into a little bit of sort of slumber, uh, leaning back in the armchair after having a big fat meal, uh, and a little bit more relaxed. They're slightly less alert then, so it's slightly easier. So around about 7, 8 o'clock when they've had a bit of time to feed, uh, and then um, you can go on through the night. I mean, I tend not to because I have to get in the studio the next day and try and paint a sensible painting. Uh, but, um, yeah, uh, three or four hours uh, after that, uh, sort of, so I'd quite often go into sort of the early hours, uh, and that that's basically the technique. Of course, they then fly, and this is on open pastures, which are they, they're flying out there to feed at nighttime on earthworms. Uh, so they come out of the woodland into those open pastures to feed at night. We've learned a lot through ringing. Um, my side, I've been ringing on for um, now 15 years. And over and above, finding out where those birds migrate to. So they're here wintering, but of course they then return to their breeding grounds where they're also shot. So those birds end up, uh, when they're shot, we get the rings recovered. People report it on a central database. We then get knowledge about where that particular bird has gone to to breed. And so that's given us that direct bit of information. But in ringing, we also do an awful lot of other stuff like taking uh, sort of measurements, body weight, uh, stuff like that, uh, measuring wings, aging woodcock, uh, all that sort of stuff, which um, also fills in quite a lot of the knowledge blanks we've got. So one of the first things I noticed on my ringing sites when I started uh, ringing over a number of years, I was actually seeing the same birds coming back to exactly where I'd ringed them the previous winter. So this is called wintering site fidelity. Uh, and that was quite interesting because I don't think anybody had really understood that that happened in Woodcock quite so strongly. Uh, and of course, as soon as I realized that, this is where the value of ringing comes in because I was able then to give talks and write articles in places like Shooting Times and some of the magazines about giving talks to shooting groups about the fact that the woodcock that you have on your land aren't just some a section of this huge population that comes washing across the country. They are your woodcock. They're hefted to your bit of ground, and that has implications in terms of shooting pressure. So my message was, look, if you want to be sustainable, you've got to be really aware of this fact because you're shooting your own hefted flock of birds, by and large, and you can do a lot of damage if you hit them too hard. What is the takeaway? How, you know, because lots of people say they don't shoot woodcock. Lots of people say that's a complete nonsense. I mean, you know, how can people shoot them sustainably? Obviously, Wild Justice, I think, was it last year, launched a campaign to get the woodcock season changed. Is that something that you would support? And what else would you suggest in terms of shooting them sustainably? First of all, I, I think it's really good news that we're having uh, a, a grown-up conversation about this. I welcome it. Uh, I, my, the reason I got into ringing was to address the question of sustainability because people were talking about that we were sustainable. 
Um, it is very complex, though, because we have to recognise that we have a resident reading population, which we know has declined in recent years. And a lot of people have done for Woodcock Roading surveys that, um, that the BTO and GWCT have been doing together. Uh, and we know that that is concerned. But the other population, of course, is that huge migrant population that come here to overwinter each year. And so you have that interrelation between those two populations and therefore shooting has a different effect on each of those. Um, so I, I think that now we're talking about it and we're having a, a, a decent and open conversation, which is really good news and be welcomed. The fact that people are now questioning whether they need to shoot so many uh, is really good. I, my personal perspective on this is just talking about driven pheasant shooting. Uh, it, uh, my view is if you're going to shoot uh, a woodcock on those shoots, then you take the responsibility of shooting those one or two woodcock. They're not just more game to go in the cart off to the game dealer, that you should take that responsibility of killing those birds personally, take them out to eat, but not to shoot too many, because that's really not why you're there. You're there to shoot driven pheasant. Uh, and so I'm, I'm you know, supportive of people say on driven pheasant shoots, we don't shoot woodcock here. Uh, that's fine. But as we discussed previously, there aren't probably that many woodcock turning up on big pheasant shoots anyway because of the level of disturbance. So, you know, that's one aspect which is very good. The other side of it is uh, in areas where we know we have breeding woodcock, then the advice for many years now, a good number of years, has been that we shouldn't shoot them until the beginning of December when we know the bulk of the migrants have come in and that will mitigate the very real potential impact of shooting your home breeding birds. If you started earlier in the season, you'd be purely shooting your resident birds. But then you start looking at the evidence of what is actually causing that decline. And then you start stacking up what the major drivers of that are. And there are a number of factors that are beginning to emerge in some of the science. Climate change, we know, is moving breeding ranges of a lot of birds northwards by a mile a year. That's the latest of the calculation. That's the latest research. So we know that climate change is affecting breeding range. Uh, and we have to recognize that we're on the very western fringe of a massive breeding range for woodcock that stretches right across boreal woodlands all the way to the east of Russia. So we're right on that western tip. And you can imagine with climate change that that is going to be pushing, ebbing and flowing exactly where that breeding line is on its westward fringe, if you like. I mentioned earlier on that whales don't have a lot of breeding woodcock, if, if any, actually, in the west of Wales. And the same is the case for the southwest, uh, southwest of England as well. And historically, there's never been records of big numbers breeding in those areas. And my guess is that's probably climate related. These are places that have high rainfall. And certainly in my experience here in West Wales, I've seen wetter springtime here that would be very detrimental to brood survival. And that's probably one of the big drivers pushing that breeding range further eastwards away from these very wet sort of zones. And then you've got all the other factors like woodland management. Nobody's coppicing woodland anymore. So the understory is not suitable. Uh, you've got predation, which is a major factor. And we know that that's building. And you've got more human disturbance in woodland, generally speaking. Oh, and just lastly, what's your prediction in terms of woodcock going forward? I mean, how, how different will the woodcock population be here in 20 or 30 years' time? Do you think resident woodcock will be gone completely? Do you think we'll still receive the same number of migrants? Or how different do you think things will be 
That's a really difficult question, and uh, you know, I think people like Andrew Hoodless, who is the the scientist on this, um, would probably uh, be the best person to ask. My personal perspective is, I think that those drivers I've just mentioned will continue to push the numbers down. I suspect. Uh, but we don't really know how climate change is going to play, particularly in the UK with the Gulf Stream. You know, that's a, quite a complex picture. Uh, but there's other factors such as human disturbance and woodland. I mean, there's a lot of talk now about, about planting more trees. It could well be that we end up providing more breeding habitat for woodcock because we're planting more trees. On the other hand, I do worry about some of my local farms where I see a lot of woodcock of the, the migrant woodcock feeding at night. If those fields are covered in trees uh, or have trees nearby, um, that reduces the number of fields where woodcock can, can feed at night. So, you know, it's quite a complex picture. So really the answer is we don't really know. What I think will happen, I, I, I've, I've no doubt in my mind that that large um global population across boreal woodlands of uh, Europe will gradually shift uh, northwards as that habitat sort of colonizes further northwards with with global warming uh, and and that has happened since the ice age you know the ice came quite uh, far south and it's gradually pushed north and there is some evidence uh, that the breeding range of those the European woodcock is actually stretching northwards in places like Norway. So it looks like that she's slowly breeding further and further northwards as trees start populating that sort of the sub-tundra area. If woodcock weren't able to be shot in this country, it would be detrimental to woodcock in terms of fewer people being interested in them. I mean, do you think that those who shoot them are interested in them and therefore will reset skirts carried out? I mean, you know, I suppose in short, the question is, do woodcock benefit from shooting and the interest of shooters or do those who shoot woodcock do more harm than good? I think that uh, I, I think that we have benefited from the point I mentioned previously, which is that that factor of best self-interest of uh, producing habitat. Uh, and so, yeah, I think that if shooting ended, it would be no different from any other species. And I, I think we can, as a shooting community, proudly point to the fact that we have managed by and large, and there's some variants in this, but by and large, we have managed habitat for our quarry species. And that goes all the way back through human history, if you like, that we've created places that are good for particular quality quarry species. And so I think we would, yes, certainly miss that. And, and certainly when you look at the research that's been done, and as previous editor of Shooting Times, you'll know uh, the Shooting Times Woodcock Club uh, have helped fund GWCT in its research. Virtually all the research and all the knowledge we now know and have of this species has come through funding and the vested interest of the shooting community. And I think we're at risk of losing that if uh, if it came off the quarry list. It does make you think a little bit about things like capercaillie and grey partridge. And, you know, I think grey partridge probably is, is in a similar category in terms of the vested self-interest. But I did talk to a gamekeeper who spent his whole life really in areas where capercaillie are just hanging on. And he said to me, you know what, I think if people were still able to shoot capercaillie, capercaillie would be in a better place than they are now. I think there's a very strong argument there. I agree. I, you know, I also think that we're moving into a, a time and place where overall the shooting community is a lot more sustainably minded. And, uh, you know, we're all, we're all beginning to embrace the importance of maintaining that really complex weave of 
the rural community how we work. Sadly, it's something that I think our politicians don't fully understand all the way through agriculture, you know, the rural community, the rural economy. But this is a really, really important and complex weave. So you start putting strands of that out, like banning certain things, disengaging people from the countryside and their habitat. I think we're all going to lose out. I think that's definitely a problem if we're not careful. Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, about two or three years ago, I was having lunch with uh, Chris Packham and he said to me, how about working together on a ban on woodcock shooting? And I said to him, you know, I'll think about it hard. And I did. And I, I came to the same conclusion that you've just come to. And I do worry that these things become very divisive when really we should be united in trying to save woodcock. One of the consequences of this episode is that I've got really into comforting things. I've been comforting partridge legs, I've been comforting pigeon legs, I even comforted some peel legs at Christmas time. But another consequence is that I've been thinking hard about the way that I interact with the things that I shoot. I mean, it surely figures that if you enjoy shooting peel or snipe or woodcock, you should try to you should try to give back. So, you know, if you enjoy shooting snipe, why not see about some wetland restoration? Or if you enjoy shooting woodcock, why not see about some coppicing? You can do these things even if you don't have your own land. I mean, I asked a guy about a year and a half ago if I could build a, a duck pond or a store a duck pond, I should say, on his ground. And he said, yeah, sure. And I had so much fun doing it. And actually, it was really quite hard work. And when the ducks started to come, which was only just a couple of months ago, I looked at them and I thought, you know what? I'm not sure I actually want to shoot them. It kind of had changed my relationship with ducks briefly. and. I think it's good to get pushed towards thinking about these things in a, in a complex way. If you enjoy writing on the complexities of the countryside and on the complexity of field sports, do subscribe to Scribebound. I think you know there's been some great stuff there from Richard Negus lately, from Patrick Laurie, from Sam Carlyle, who you heard from. It's become, I think, in a very short period, the home for the best countryside writing. Do do have a look. It's pretty cheap to subscribe. And it's, it's an interesting way of doing things. It's a different way of doing countryside writing. This episode of Beyond the Hedge was presented by me, Patrick Galbraith. It was edited by George Brown, and George Brown was the executive producer. Beyond the Hedge is a Scribe Hound production. <laughs>